This is day 221 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be completing Ephesians chapters 1 through 5. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us into your presence this morning with fresh mercies and fresh hope. Lord, you never disappoint us. You always keep your promises, and you always support those who are called by your name. Help us to remember that today, that we are not alone, that you are always with us, and you're guiding us with your footsteps in front of us. Sometimes, Lord, you put us on your back, and you carry us. And so often, we don't even realize that you're guiding us. But help us to be more sensitive to your spirit and to your voice in the coming days, that we may be filled with joy, may be filled with purpose. Please guide us through the scriptures today as we explore your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, 
what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the counsel of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That is a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God, through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father.
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which, in other generations, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent 
to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him, and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which, in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. 
He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Welcome to the book of Ephesians, and as we've seen, there's a lot of good doctrine and expectations from God in here, so we'll definitely be exploring this a bit today. A little bit of background, though, on Ephesians, first of all. The book of Ephesians is sometimes referred to as the first of the prison epistles. What scholars have put together is that there were four different epistles, or letters, that Paul wrote while he was in prison. And this was during his Roman imprisonment, the one that we see at the very end of the book of Acts. And that is the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those four were written during that time that he was imprisoned in Rome. That was his first imprisonment. There will be some time that Paul will be released from that imprisonment, and he will continue to share the gospel and travel around. But then, at the end of his life, he will be imprisoned again in Rome, and that's when we see him write the final letter, chronologically, which is Second Timothy. And then he is executed for his faith. So the book of Ephesians is more of a doctrinal treatise than it is like the other ones. Because the other ones were more to chastise those that were not doing what they were supposed to. It was more of exhortation for that particular ethnicity or group of people. But for the Ephesians, it's not so much directed to them in particular, but it seems to be an overall list of doctrines and instructions for the church in general. So it is widely believed that this letter was passed around from place to place, especially because it doesn't talk about the Ephesians directly. Apparently, there's either no issues with them at the time, or that was not the purpose of this letter. 
So at the beginning of chapter 1 of Ephesians, we have God's eternal purpose written down for us in very descriptive language, and it's quite fascinating to read, especially when you get to verses 4 and 5, where it talks about how God chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Can you believe that? That He picked you before He ever created anything. That's fascinating and quite humbling to think about, isn't it? Before He said, let there be light, He knew your name, and He chose you for salvation in the proper time. There's nothing more humbling than that. It is such a high honor and a privilege that we were chosen for no reason at all, except that he wanted to. So what did he do in verse 5? He predestined us. And a lot of people have problems with that, because predestination means that I didn't have a choice. And you know what? You're exactly right. You didn't have a choice. God saved you whether you like it or not. But if you haven't figured it out by now in what we've read through the New Testament, you never would have picked salvation on your own. You would have picked the fleshly things of this world. So God had to be the one to act, because you would not act on your own. So for that reason, we should be glorifying God for choosing us because we never would have chosen him, but yet he loved us first. What did he predestine us to? Adoption, heirship as sons. And so we will be inheriting the things that Jesus inherited. He is our older brother, but he is also our savior. It's a very interesting dynamic. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. I don't think God has ever given you the bare minimum. He has given you so many blessings, so much eternal life, and on top of that, he's given you gifts. He's given you spiritual gifts to serve him. He's given you knowledge and wisdom. He's given you insight. He's given you convictions. He's given you purpose and hope. All of this, the world doesn't have. It is quite humbling to think about. So even if we scratch the surface on this idea, that should change everything that we do. And that should change our motivations for everything we do. Not only that, but in verse 13, it says that in him, after you listened to the message of truth, which is the gospel, the one that saved you, you believed and you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. There is your proof scripture that you cannot lose your salvation. Once you have it, it is permanent. You were sealed. And the understanding here is like a king. They have a signet ring. It's a special ring that shows that the king signed it. And they would stamp it with wax and they would put it onto the paper to show that it was a permanent seal of approval. And it was not to be broken. And so in the same way, this seal 
is a permanent seal by God through the Holy Spirit indwelling you. That's how you know you're saved, as well as it is a promise and a guarantee that you're going to heaven. Now, we already read Romans, which told us that that doesn't mean we have a license to sin moving forward, and we can do whatever we want, but we actually have greater responsibility now in using what God has given us for his glory. Like he says here in verse 14, he's given us this pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. That's why we do these things. It's for his glory. He does everything for two reasons, primarily. For his glory and for our good. That's why he does things. If it doesn't glorify him, it's not worth doing. And so that's why it should not be our motivation to please ourselves. It should be our motivation to please God. And therefore, he'd be glorified, and then he would give us rewards in return. I'm not saying this is a merit-based salvation or anything like that, but it does say elsewhere that if we believe that he rewards those who please him, then he will do it. And not only that, what did Jesus say? Is that if you do anything in my name, I will do it. If you do anything that will glorify me, I will listen to you. There is truth in this, and we have to remember that. Chapter 2 is an extremely important doctrine. The first doctrine that he mentions here is that we were dead in our trespasses, which means that spiritually we had no life in us. We lived, we existed, but we were basically walking corpses. That which is dead cannot save itself, can it? And that is why you never would have picked God because we were dead in our trespasses. Use that illustration back from Ezekiel, where he went to that valley of bones. And when he prophesied to those bones, they came together. Then God put on sinew, put on skin. And then they were nothing until he breathed life into them. And then they became something. We're the same way. When we are unsaved, We exist in the world, we have our form, we have our existence, but at the same time, we don't have any spiritual insight at all. We have no life in us, no true godly life. Only when the Holy Spirit changes you and offers you salvation, then you have true life in Christ. So before that, you were dead in your trespasses. The sin that you lived in caused you to be dead. You're a zombie walking in this world. And so we never would have chosen God. Therefore, he had to act first. And so what did we do? We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, which is a fancy way of saying Satan. But we walked according to the patterns of the world to the demonic forces, to the sinful nature that we are in. But now, we are no longer a part of that world. The way I've heard it described is like this, how in Christ, we are new creatures, right? We have a new creation. But the old body is still strapped to us. 
where it's still hanging on to us, weighing us down, but it is no longer a part of us anymore. It still has its influences, it still has its weightiness, it still has its burdens, but we are no longer associated with it. And so that's something to consider, because if we lived according to the lust of our flesh, like we did before, the Bible says here in verse 3 that we were, by nature, children of wrath. Meaning that at the end of our life, we would face the wrath of God, his judgment, and his judgment would send us to hell. But God was not content to let us go to hell, those who were chosen. He allows us the opportunity to see him for who he really is. So while we were dead in our transgressions, verse 5, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is one of those things that separates us from other religions, the way that grace works. All these other religions, it is man's activity that causes the God to act. But in this case, God acts for the man. And in this case, we are given grace, undeserved favor. And because of that, he saved us. There's nothing we did. There is no merit. There is no effort. There is no work that would ever give you salvation. So anytime you have Jesus and, you're wrong. It was only Jesus Christ that saved you. It's not Jesus and works. It is not Jesus and being a good person. It is not Jesus and coming from a different ethnicity or family. It is not Jesus and whatever. It is only Jesus that offers us salvation. It is his choice, his power, his authority, and therefore his instilling of life into us. It's that simple. Many people don't agree with that. And that's why we have so many different religions out there that deviate from the Word of God. But this is the reality of our situation. We don't have to like it, but this is what it is. You can either willfully ignore it, or you can accept it with gladness. But this is our reality. It is by the grace of God that we have been saved. Then he reveals a mystery. Again, this is something that was not revealed to the people in the past, but now is currently revealed. That we are all united in one body, and that one body is Jesus Christ. And that one body in this world is called the church. The church is now between Jews and Gentiles, as he describes here in chapter 2. We are all being united into one body. And therefore, we are no longer strangers with each other. We're not aliens. We are fellow citizens with the saints. All saints worldwide, no matter what language you speak, what ethnicity you are, what color of your skin, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you are saved by his grace, we are all one family. We have all things in common now. But I think this is an important thing that the church today forgets, is verse 20. 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the corner stone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. There are so many churches today that are not focused on the apostolic teachings, that are not focused on what the prophets have foretold, and ultimately not focused on Christ Jesus. What is their focus then? Trying to please man, or trying to please themselves, or even more sad, exalting mankind to a level it does not belong. If we were dead in our trespasses, there's nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation. So why are we trying to prop ourselves up and put ourselves on a pedestal? We have nothing good in us. Why do we waste our time trying to discover the true human potential? Name it and you claim it. God wants you to be rich and healthy, and if you're not, then you don't belong to God. Your focus is not on the things of God at that point. It's the things about yourself. How you can be comforted. How much wealth you can acquire. How much fame you can have. How much power you and influence you can have. Really? Those are the aims that God wants us to have? Absolutely not. Those are not the fruit of the Spirit. He shows us what the fruit of the Spirit is. We already talked about it in Galatians. And he reminds us again what some of those things are. And it's not that. Let me be very clear. If your church is not focused on Jesus Christ, is not opening its Bible and not talking straight from the Scriptures every week, not offering the plan of the Gospel, not focused on seeing Christ glorified, you're in the wrong church. That church is dead. All they care about is themselves or every wind of doctrine, every doctrine of demons. They are in the wrong camp. They have false allegiance to God. There are so many of those today, and it should be painfully obvious. If you are paying attention to the Word of God, they should be obvious. And if you see something wrong, there's two things we have to do. One, it says that we need to say something. But secondly, we also need to leave that environment if there is no repentance. Repentance is key here. Why does the world struggle with repentance so much? Because that means you have to admit that you were wrong. And like we talk about here in chapter 4, is how when you thrust darkness into the light, it is very uncomfortable. And we are called, in verse 11, to expose unfruitful deeds of darkness. I think there's a limit to how we should do that, but we should definitely make people aware of the evil that is going on in the world, as well as in your own church. Let's start at a local level. If there's something going on in your church, you know somebody not doing the right thing in your church, actively sinning or causing dissension or division, you cannot ignore it. It's going to get worse if you don't do anything. Something has to be said. And if the leadership refuses to do anything about it, 
then we do what the apostles did. You wipe the dust off your feet and you go somewhere else. Don't stick around for a pastor. Don't stick around because of your friends or family. We need to forsake all those cultural things for the things of God. We need Christ to be proclaimed. We need him to be proclaimed as being crucified. And ultimately, the church is to glorify him. The church is not to be seeker-sensitive. The church exists for the believer. If God chooses to bring unbelievers into our midst, then they should be impacted by the gospel when they walk in our doors. Otherwise, it is for equipping the saints. That sounds familiar. We are called to equip the saints. That's what the church is for. And that's why this podcast exists. In chapter 4, he challenges us from the very first verse that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is vital to the health of a church. This is how we relate with each other. We need to walk the walk and talk the talk. Don't just act a certain way at church, like everything's just fine, but then as soon as you leave that church, you're a sinner. We need to live the way we live every day. Pick a side. You pick God or you pick the world. If you don't pick God, then it's pretty obvious where your allegiance is. Are you capable of backsliding? Yeah, but you will come back. But those who never come back or forsook the faith that they claimed they had were never one of us. We need to treat each other with respect, with gentleness, and eliminate all pride between us. And it even says here in verse 3, to be diligent to preserve the unity. We need to be united. What is the first church famous for? It said that they did everything in one spirit, or they did everything in one mind, meaning they were united. They consolidated and did everything with one singular purpose, and that was the glorification of God and his name being spread. Can we say that for ourselves? I sure hope we can, because that is what God intended for us. Then in the second half of chapter 4, he talks about that we are not to be like children. We are to be mature, not being tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But instead, we are to grow in maturity. How do we be more mature as Christians? Prayer, studying the Bible, going to church, fellowshipping with fellow believers. All these things contribute to your maturity. And through this maturity, we can see through the lies that the world tries to throw at us, as well as have resistance from wanting to partake in sinful things. You won't be perfect, of course not but it will definitely increase your resistance and your resilience to those things. Because ultimately, 
We belong to one body. We all serve a purpose in the church. Some are meant to be heads, some are meant to be feet, some are meant to be organs, some are meant to be fingers, but we all have a purpose. Not everybody's supposed to do the same thing. Then he spends the remainder of chapter 4 talking about our former life, the life before we were saved. We need to put that stuff behind us. Leave the past in the past. Move forward in the light of Christ and do all things for his glory. We need to remember where we came from, and we need to use that as our testimony in order to show people the hope that we have. But we don't have to participate in that world any longer. That activity does not apply to us anymore. And I'm sure that if you're saved, you'll know this, that if you have tried to go back, it's not quite the same. You're not quite as satisfied as you once were, because the Holy Spirit's within you now, and he's showing you that there are better things. But in addition, it also says that we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit, which is verse 30. The Holy Spirit is grieved, or if you want to put it like this, he's pained by sin, especially the sins of the tongue, like we see here in verse 29 and verse 31. Let no unwholesome word proceed from the mouth, but only such a word as good for edification, for the building up of each other. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. We need to not be bitter people. We need to stop gossiping. We need to stop talking bad about other Christians in our church behind their backs. Those are not healthy signs. Every time we do that, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We hurt Him. And all it just does is damage our relationship with God. Why would we want to do that to ourselves? Why would we want to hurt the one who is saving us and sanctifying us every day? He will convict you if you listen to him. We don't want to sear our consciences and ignore him. But he will be grieved, and you will feel that guilt when you do it, hopefully. If not, there's a problem. You may need to repent. Chapter 5 begins with something that Paul has been saying in the past, that we are to imitate him. And who does he imitate? He imitates Christ. But now he's going directly to God as us imitating him. We are the children, and God is our parent. Therefore, we need to look at our parents for an example, and we need to follow his example, which is everything that was through Christ. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, Therefore, we need to do the same for each other and for the fallen world. And in doing so, that will be an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma that will please our Lord. So all these things that the world once had us captive in no longer belong to us. All these immoralities and impurities must not even be named among you. We are beyond that at this point. We are prepared for bigger and better things. We'll still get dragged down every so often. I mean, we, it's hard not to beat yourself up. Trust me, I'm very hard on myself. I have my weaknesses. I have the same flaws I perform all the time, and it frustrates me to no end. 
But at the same time, if we are just angry with ourselves and throwing our hands up, then we're not going to accomplish anything. We need to purpose to be better. It won't just happen passively. You need to purpose it. You need to work toward it. That's why also in verse 15 he says, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. Every day is going to be filled with evil, because we are in an evil world. So we need to make the most of our time. Or how Moses said in Psalm 90, Help us to number our days. I've told you before, and it's in my testimony as well, that video games is my vice. And I've been playing it since I was four years old. I recently did a tally of a rough estimate of how much time of my life I have wasted in playing video games. You know what I came up with? I have spent somewhere between 15,000 to 20,000 hours of my life playing video games. That, if you were to put it back to back to back to back to back, you're talking about six to seven consecutive nonstop years of my life at this point that I have wasted. I am 38 years old. So you're talking about between 15 to 20% of my existence has been spent playing video games. It is hard for me not to be angry with myself on this. But then I had to stop and realize that God did all this on purpose. God is sovereign. He ordained all of that to happen. And therefore, instead of beating myself up about it, I should use that for his glory somehow. In that I need to purpose not to waste any more time, but also to use that as a way to relate with people. We suffer from addictions. We suffer from being distracted. We suffer from putting other things before God and ultimately numbing our brains by filling it with random garbage instead of freeing our minds to be able to think creatively or to better ourselves or to train and discipline ourselves in some way, mind, body, and spirit. How often can we turn off to the TV and stop watching Netflix and read a book? How often can we set aside video games and go exercise? How often can we stop looking at Instagram or Facebook and think about somebody that we need to pray for? Do you see how the world purposely creates these devices and these distractions for us so that it renders us ineffective for the kingdom of God? That is the realization I came to is that all of these things, while they have their purpose, and I'm not saying it's wrong to entertain yourself, we are supposed to enjoy the fruits of our labors, and we are supposed to enjoy the world that we're in, in terms of allowing ourselves some time to relax, and to rest, and to have fun. We're allowed to do those things. But there is a line that we cross so often where we do it in excess. And with that wasted time, we could have done something very productive. Praying for somebody, visiting somebody in need, thinking about how we can make more money, 
for the betterment of God's kingdom. How we can spend time with our spouse or our children. How we can get ourselves in physical shape. How we can grow in wisdom and knowledge by reading the Word or by reading books that help us in that way. You know, there's, there's plenty of things in the world that we could be doing that we're not because we're so distracted with entertainment. That is a terrible way that the world holds us captive. We need to avoid those things. We really do. Consider what you are doing in your life. If you spend a chunk of your days on social media, watching TV, playing video games, all the things that I've done, then there's something wrong. And we need to forsake those things so that we can focus on God. Because that's what the world wants. The world wants you to be saved. That's fine. But they want you to not do anything with it. Do you want them to win? Do you really want to be defeated by them time and time again? Why do you let them defeat you? Rely on God to come to that realization and get out of that environment. And finally, in chapter 5, we began with how to be in relation with each other in, as Christians, as well as with the Holy Spirit. But then it goes to home life, especially between a husband and a wife. There's a lot in here that we could talk about, but very briefly. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Your husband is not God, and he's not going to be. But at the same time, regardless of the way that he is, because trust me, I'm aware that as a husband and as a man, I can be difficult sometimes, and I can be stubborn. We all have our issues. But at the same time, regardless of those things, the wife needs to be in subject to their husband. There are, are some limits, though. There are some things that we have to know, of course, that if the husband is telling you to do something that is contrary to God's word, then we don't have to do that. Women, I hope you know that. Nor do you have to accept an abusive environment, whether it's verbal, mental, psychological, physical, hopefully not. But no, you don't have to be subject to that. You have the right to stand up for yourself. But otherwise, if it's none of those things, then you are to be subject to your husband. You are equals, but when it comes to who is the leader, it's the man. That is the way God designed it. However, husbands, this does not mean you can do as you please. You have a responsibility as being the prophet of your home, the priest of your home, and the king of your home to be worthy of that honor. You have to live like you are worthy of respect. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church, and he gave himself up for her. You may have to die and sacrifice for your wife. What I mean is, you may have to give up your time, give up of your energy, give up of your comfort, so that she can be comforted. She is the weaker vessel, not only physically, but also emotionally. They are emotionally driven, and men are not so much emotionally driven. And that plays to an advantage when it comes to seeing things logically. So you may need to compensate for some of the things your wife has weakened, as she compensates for you as well. 
It is a partnership. You are one flesh, according to the Bible. You are one flesh. You are one person. You are each halves of each other. So when we say that she is my better half, that's what it's referring to. You are literally one flesh. You are one person. And if you truly love your wife, you will love her like you love yourself. We love ourselves plenty. But that is how you show true love to your spouse. You love them the way you love yourself. You consider them first. You make sure they're comfortable and they have everything they need. Do they need for you to talk to them? Do you need to spend time in the bedroom? Do you need to have those conversations with things that they're doing correctly? Are you available to them? Are you listening to them? Are you treating them nicely? Something that I had trouble with for a long time, and I still do, is when I disagree, do I give off an air of disapproval? And if your wife constantly feels like you don't like her or you disapprove of everything she does, then it discourages her. We can't be that way. We are partners. And we are one flesh. So, men, even though your wife should be subject to you, she's not always going to be. Do you remember what it said in the Garden of Eden? That her desire will be for her husband. Not saying would be for you in particular, for the position, for the power, for the authority to be the leader. There will be those times that the men will have to assert their dominance in that way. The women will try to step out of line and will try to be the alpha, so to speak. But that's not how God designed it. A godly woman understands that they need to be submissive. That doesn't mean that they are a doormat. That doesn't mean that they are your slave, because they're not. But when it comes down to making decisions, you make decisions together. But if you can't agree with something, the man has the final say, because they are the spiritual leader of the home. But then again, husband comes back to you. You need to be the spiritual leader. And if you're not, there's something very wrong. Men, you need to be worthy of the respect of your wives. Wives, you need to love your husband. And trust me, as a man, men's egos are very fragile. And truly, what the only thing a man really wants from their wife is their admiration and respect. That's all they want. And everything else will go just fine. You give them admiration and respect, I promise you, women, you will have a happy husband. There is so much we could talk about here, and I can go on for hours on it, because there is so much practical stuff to consider here, but we'll stop here for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.